Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. There are two questions the Apostle Paul asks the, the Galatians in this uh, our sermon text. Both of them are leading questions. He, he's not asking the questions because he doesn't know what the answers are. Uh, he's, not, not telling, he's not testing the Galatians to see if they know what the answers are, nor is he asking rhetorical questions to which everybody knows what the answers are. The answers are obvious. No, Paul is asking these two leading questions because he's trying to lead the Galatians to a more contemplative assessment of their own situation. The first question is in verse 15. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? And the second question is in verse 16. Have I therefore become an enemy, your enemy, because... I tell you the truth. The situation that Paul wants the Galatians to be more contemplative about is his personal relationship with them. Uh, He begins in verse 13 by reminding them how their relationship began. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And the physical infirmity he's referring to was when the Judaizers nearly killed Paul in Lystra. Uh, You can read about this in Acts 13 and 14. Paul and Barnabas were on their first missionary journey, and a band of angry Judaizers were pursuing them. And Acts 14, 19 describes what happened when the Jews caught up with them in Lystra. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged them out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now, what I want you to notice from this verse is how the angry Jews were able to, quote-unquote, persuade the multitudes to join with them in stoning Paul with the intention of killing him. This multitude were the people of Lystra who just days before had witnessed Paul miraculously heal a man who had been crippled from birth. And these people uh, in Lystra who just days earlier were trying to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods because they saw the extraordinary power of the Lord working in Paul and Barnabas. And perhaps some portion of this multitude included people uh, who had uh, supposedly received the gospel from Paul and Barnabas. The, the, The mob that was attacking Paul, some of them were probably people who had purportedly, supposedly, received the gospel from Paul and Barnabas. And the point being that prior to the arrival of these angry Jews, the people of Lystra were very favorable toward these missionaries. Uh, But then they flipped. In a matter of a day, they flipped and they joined the angry mob that was trying to kill these missionaries. This is a demonstration of how people can be fickle. Now, children, if you don't know what fickle means, uh, it's a word that describes the person who's very easily persuaded to change their opinions and affections. Um, A fickle person is the exact opposite of a loyal person. 
Uh, they walk away from relationships. Fickle people walk away from relationships very easily. Um, when it's no longer fun for them, or when there's work that needs to be done, or when they think the relationship is no longer meeting their needs, they give up. They'll throw it away. Uh, and fickle people will often turn uh, on their friends, uh, becoming an adversary to those that they used to be friends with. And that's what the multitude of people in Lystra did to Paul. Uh, they initially befriended him, but then uh, they were very easily persuaded to turn against him. Within a matter of days, they went from wanting to worship him to wanting to kill him. And Jesus he experienced this type of fickleness on several occasions. One is described in Luke 4. He was in a synagogue and had just finished preaching a sermon from Isaiah 61, and the people were thoroughly impressed with Jesus. Uh, they thought he preached a very edifying sermon. Luke 4, verse 22 says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. But then there were a couple people who began to take issue with Jesus. They began opposing him. And within a matter of minutes, the very people who had just been marveling at Jesus' gracious words were moved to wrath and indignation, and they wanted to kill Jesus. Luke writes in verses 28 and 29, So all those in the synagogue, all of them, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. These are the people that were just marveling. Another occasion when Jesus experienced the fickleness of people was during the Passion Week. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the people were shouting, Hosanna! But a couple days later, those same people were yelling, Crucify him! Crucify him! People are fickle. Many of us can easily be persuaded to give up our loyalties and our friendships because we have a propensity to be fickle. The angry mob of people in Lystra beat Paul so severely that they thought he was dead. They drug him out of the city. They left him laying on the ground so that the wild dogs could come and devour him. But Acts 14 verse 20 tells us that when the disciples, the, the, the true disciples, uh, that being Barnabas and the others who were with him, gathered around Paul, that Paul rose up and went into the city. He wasn't dead, or perhaps he was dead, and the Lord revived him. We don't know for certain, but what we do know is that they thought he was dead. The disciples came. Paul rose up, and he went into the city. The next day, uh, they all departed. Paul, Barnabas, they went to Derby. Derby was a, a, a short distance away. It's a different town than Lystra. And Paul stayed in Derby for a long time. In fact, he had to stay in Derby for a long time because he needed to heal from the injuries that he had sustained in Lystra. But that was okay because the people of Derby showed love and affection to Paul. Uh, he writes in verse 14 of our sermon text, And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Now, 
In terms of injuries, Paul must have had some kind of an injury uh, that he sustained in Lystra, uh, some kind of an injury to his eye, or perhaps both eyes, uh, because he says in verse 15, For I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. So Paul is reminding the Galatians how loving and nurturing they were to him. He's reminding them how dedicated and loyal they were to him. While others were fickle, they were not. And this is the context in which he asks the first leading questions. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? Or as the ESV puts it, what then has become of the blessing you felt? Paul's trying to make the Galatians remember the blessing they experienced when they ministered to his needs and walked according to the gospel of grace. Do you know the blessing that Paul is writing about, brothers and sisters? Have you experienced this blessing? There's a peculiar joy and satisfaction that Christians experience when we genuinely love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Um, I say it's peculiar because it's not something that has natural origins. Rather, it's a blessing that comes down from the Father of lights and rests on the souls of those who are resting in his grace. Uh, It's a blessing that produces substantial joy and satisfaction that's not contingent upon having favorable circumstances in our lives. That's a, that's a really key element there. It's not contingent upon having favorable circumstances in our lives. Non-Christians don't understand this blessing because they've never experienced it. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't, don't, don't misinterpret what I'm saying. I'm not saying that non-Christians have never experienced joy or happiness. They do. But their joy and happiness is different. It has natural origins, which means their joy and happiness are contingent upon favorable circumstances. So long as things are going well in their life, they're happy. But when things begin not going so well, their happiness dissipates. It's gone. And they can't regain it until things turn around and start going well for them again. That's not the case with the peculiar joy that we Christians experience. We're able to experience true, genuine, and lasting joy regardless of our circumstances. And this is why Paul and Silas were able to to joyfully sing songs of praise to God when they were wrongfully beaten and shackled to a wall of a jail cell in Philippi. Consider the Beatitudes that Jesus preached in Matthew 5. The word Beatitude literally means blessing. And it's used in Scripture to describe a a state of joy and happiness. Uh, From a natural perspective, it's unimaginable that the poor in spirit would be joyful and happy. Or that those who mourn would be joyful and happy. Or that those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake would be joyful and happy. Yet Jesus says they are. It's not a natural joy and happiness. Rather, it's that peculiar blessing of joy, contentment, 
peace and satisfaction that comes only to Christians who are resting in the grace of God. The Galatians had initially experienced this blessing. When Paul first came to them all battered and broken, he brought the good news of the gospel to them, and they believed it. Uh, They received that good news, and they responded with a display of Christian love for Paul that was able to nurture him back to good health. They They were the ones loving on him. Paul says that they showed so much love for him that he, con- he was convinced that they would have even plucked out their own eyes if they thought that that was possible and they would have given them to Paul that he may have his, his ailment, his sight improved. And the point the apostle is making with all of this is that such generous and sacrificial displays of love produce that peculiar blessing of joy and happiness within the Christian's heart. You hear that? Generous and sacrificial displays of Christian love will produce in us that peculiar blessing of joy and happiness uh, that, that resides deep within our hearts. Uh, so Paul's reminded the Galatians that when they experienced that peculiar blessing, he, he then asks them, what then became of that blessedness that you felt? Are you still experiencing that? Do you still have that peculiar joy in your heart? Are you able to be happy and content even when your circumstances are are not favorable? Do you see what Paul's doing here? Now that the the, the Galatians have stopped resting in God's grace, for they were... They were being persuaded by the legalist Judaizers to give up grace and to go back to a workspace system uh, of salvation. So now that the Galatians are, are in this transitional period of, of turning back to legalism uh, and stop resting in the grace of God, they're placing themselves in bondage. They're placing themselves in bondage to the weak and beggarly elements of legalism. And in and, and, and so doing, they are depriving themselves of those very blessings that Paul was calling their attention to. Their lives are no longer characterized by joyful obedience, by the satisfaction of serving others sacrificially, and by a loyal love for the apostle who went to such great personal sacrifices to bring the gospel to them. The reality is the Galatians have become fickle. They've become fickle in their relationship with God and they've become fickle in their relationship with Paul. In chapter 1, verse 6, Paul had challenged them on being fickle in their relationship with God. Uh, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of, of Christ. And then in verse 16 of our sermon text, Paul challenges them on being fickle in their relationship with him. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Have I become your enemy, Paul is saying, because I've spoken loving words of correction to you? Is that why you are my enemy? Because I've attempted to pull you away from the errors of legalism? Because I pointed you back to the freedom of the gospel of grace? Because I'm actually confronting you as a loving and loyal friend would do? Is that why I'm your enemy? 
Brothers and sisters, I suspect you know some fickle friends and family members. I suspect you have firsthand experience with the emotional pain that, that fickle people cause when they turn on you. How are you supposed to respond to these situations? How is a Christian who understands the value of loyalty and commitment in relationships supposed to respond when somebody they trust turns against them? What should your attitude toward that person be? What type of response should you give? Should you go talk to that person? What if they refuse to talk with you? Do you persist in pursuing them? And if so, how long do you continue to persist? Do you keep subjecting yourself to their emotional abuse? Do you continue to allow them to harm you when you have the ability to withdraw from them? What's the Christian response in these situations? How do you show love and grace in these situations? Paul gives us a beautiful example for how he was dealing with his fickle friends. He starts with discerning the real cause of the stress in the relationship. Now, when you think about what caused the tensions in the Galatians' relationship with Paul, you might be inclined to focus on the lies and distortions of truth the Jewish troublemakers spread through, you know, amongst the Galatians. They had come in, they had said some really nasty things about Paul. They had proposed an errant doctrine of legalism. And so they were introducing all of this into the relationship that the Galatians had with Paul. And so we, could, we, we might be inclined, therefore, to, to believe that the source of the conflict was the slander that the Judaizers told, that the um, errant doctrine that these troublemakers introduced into Galatia. And verse 17 does make it clear that the troublemakers did drive a wedge in, into the Galatians' relationship with Paul. And one of the ways they did this was to tell them that Paul was not a real apostle. They challenged his credentials, in other words. Uh, and if you recall, Paul spent the first two chapters of this epistle establishing his apostolic authority to the uh, Galatians. Uh, this is because the troublemakers had spread so much misinformation about him. Um, but to say that the rift in their relationship was because the troublemakers slandered Paul's character really doesn't get to the heart of the issue. It doesn't probe deep enough into the problem. We need to peel back all the layers of the onion in order to get to the core issue. The slander was just one of those layers of the onion, but it wasn't the core issue. When we peel back all those layers, we discover that the core issue that was wreaking havoc in Paul's relationship with the Galatians is the same issue that wreaks havoc in all of our relationships with each other. Why is it that certain family members cannot peaceably celebrate a holiday together without getting into a fight? Why is it that neighbors who used to smile and wave at each other now look the other way when they're in their front yards? Why is it that friends who used to enjoy spending time together now don't want to be at the same event together? 
Why is it that church members who used to worship God together and partake of the Lord's Supper together now slander each other behind their backs? Why is it that a man and woman who so confidently vowed to spend the rest of their lives together for richer or poorer in sickness and in health now try to harm each other as they go through divorce hearings and custody battles and alimony cases and the division of their assets? There's a single reason why all these relationships are destroyed. It's sin. To be more specific, it's sin that is mishandled. Sin that is mishandled. The thing we need to remember about every human relationship is that it involves sinners. Every human relationship is the mingling of words, attitudes, actions, and desires of sinners. Words, attitudes, actions, and desires of sinners. And as such, we need to constantly be aware that sin is going to enter into our relationships. That's a fact. It's not a question of maybe. No, it's going to happen. Sin is going to raise its ugly head in the midst of your relationships. Your relationship with your spouse. Your relationship with your neighbors. Your relationship with your coworkers. Your relationship with your mother and your mother-in-law, your relationship with your father and your father-in-law, your siblings, your children, your classmates, your fellow church members, your church leaders. The list goes on and on. So sin is going to enter into every one of our relationships with other people because we are all sinners. It doesn't make a difference whether The sin that enters in is your sin or my sin or that other person's sin or some third party who's sticking their nose in where it doesn't belong. We need to constantly be mindful that sin will destroy our relationships if it's not handled or dealt with in a biblical manner. Dealing with sin in a biblical manner is the essential ingredient to healthy and long-lasting relationships. It's essential to the health of our marriages. It's essential to the health of our families. It's essential to the health of our church. It's essential to the health of every relationship you and I are part of. Notice how Paul is dealing with the sin that entered into his relationship with the Galatians. After discerning uh, that sin and the mishandling of it is the real problem, he addresses the Galatians as fellow Christians. Brethren, he writes at the beginning of verse 12. Now by calling them brethren, Paul is doing two things. First, he's reminding them that they have submitted themselves to Christ. Uh, they've submitted themselves to the lordship of Christ. So they're obligated to Christ. They're obligated to live in accordance with his demands. In other words, they are not their own. They were bought at a price. So they need to glorify God in their body and spirit. And they need to love the brethren as Christ loved the brethren. So that's not a small matter. That's the first thing that Paul is subtly communicating to them when he refers to them as brethren. And the second thing Paul is doing is showing that he still considers them to be Christians. 
And this too is not a small matter because the Galatians had already demonstrated strong resistance to Paul earlier in, in, in Paul's earlier attempts to be reconciled with them. They had already stiff-armed him. They had already pushed him out the door. They had already resisted his advances toward reconciliation. And yet Paul was still loving them in a manner that Christ demands of him. Not only does the term brethren impose obligations on the person we're talking to, it imposes obligations upon ourselves. And that's what Paul is acknowledging here, that he has a responsibility to love the Galatians in the manner that Christ calls him to love them. And so he's suffering long with the Galatians. He's not behaving rudely with the Galatians. He's not easily provoked by the Galatians. He's not rejoicing in iniquity. Rather, Paul is bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, and enduring all things. Which is to say, he's still approaching the Galatians in the context of a brother-to-brother relationship. It's often the case that when one of our fellow Christians does something hurtful to us, we're quick to begin questioning whether that person is really a Christian. We'll say things like, a true Christian would never do something like that. Or, a tree is known by its fruit. And that that definitely is not the fruit of a genuine Christian. Yet if we look at Paul's example with the Galatians, he had some really strong evidence that he could point to if he wanted to assert that the Galatians were not true Christians. They were in the process of abandoning the gospel. They were turning away from the God who had called them in grace, in the grace of Christ. Yet Paul refrained from rushing to the conclusion that they were not really saved. Instead, he continued to appeal to them as brothers in in hopes that they would see the errors of their way and repent and be restored. This doesn't mean that Paul sugarcoated his speech. No, he, he does communicate very candidly with them. Back in verse 11 of chapter 4, he said that uh, he's afraid that he has labored in vain with the Galatians. And then he added at the end of verse 20 that he has doubts about them. So it's not as if Paul is just sweeping legitimate concerns under the rug. No, he does call attention to those things. Uh, he, he does tell the Galatians how concerned he is about these things that he's witnessing in them. But the point is that Paul doesn't jump to the hasty conclusion that the Galatians are not true Christians. Rather, he continues to treat them as brothers, even to the point uh, where he's calling out glaring contradictions in the way that they live their professed faith. When you're in a situation where you need to deal with a Christian who has sinned against you, it's important for you to to remember that genuine, born-again Christians can do some really appalling things. All of us are capable of doing really terrible things. You are, I am, the Christian sitting next to you is, and so is a Christian who's no longer sitting next to you the Christian who's worshiping at a different church today because you guys can't be in the same worship service together anymore. It's true that a tree is known by its fruit. Jesus said so. 
So we know it's true. But if you're looking at the sin of another person uh, that they've committed, and you're concluding that they can't possibly be a Christian because a Christian would never do such a, th- uh, such a horrible thing, then you are mistaken. Uh, you are misapplying the standard. Uh, don't fall into the error of classifying all sins into two categories, the sins that genuine Christians do commit and then the sins that genuine Christians will never commit. No, genuine Christians commit all manner of sins. We commit the socially acceptable sins like worry, discontentment, impatience, and anger. And we commit the big taboo sins like adultery, murder, sodomy, idolatry. So if you're going to go down the road where you judge another person by the fruit they bear, the first thing to do is to make sure that you've already removed the log from your own eye. And the second thing is to make sure that you, are, you, you know what kind of fruit you ought to be looking for as you judge that tree. And I submit to you that the fruit you should be looking for are the fruits worthy of repentance. In Luke 3.8, which is a passage we just looked at last Sunday, John the Baptist challenges the, the people he's preaching to uh, to bear fruits worthy of repentance. And that's the standard that we ought to be using with each other. It's, it's, it's not about how big or little your sin is or my sin is. What matters is whether you and I bear fruits worthy of repentance. Does Do we humble ourselves? Does that other person humble himself to confess his sin and turn away from it? That's what genuine Christians do. Or does he continue in his sin? Does he try to defend his sin? Does he tell you that it's not as bad as what you're making it out to be? And does he refuse to submit himself to the Matthew 18 process for dealing with sin? When fruits worthy of repentance are lacking, that's when there's reason to be concerned. That's when we say, as Paul said to the Galatians, I am concerned for you. I have my doubts about you. But even then, it behooves you to begin those statements by addressing that person as brother, as Paul does in our sermon text. Brother, I have my doubts about you. Brother, I'm concerned about you. Brother, there's a glaring discrepancy between your profession of faith and, the, and the, the life you're exhibiting in your actions and words and attitudes. So let's talk about it. Let me ask you to do a little private survey in your mind. When you look back at the last decade of your life, do you see any broken relationships More specifically, do you see any broken relationships with professing Christians? I'm going to make the assumption that most of you have at least one broken relationship with a professing Christian. And I don't need to know the details about what happened because uh, between you and that other person, but I can say with confidence that the core reason that relationship is broken is because sin was not handled in a biblical manner. 
That's, that's the essence of the, of the situation. Sin was not handled in a biblical manner. And in saying this, I'm not saying that every broken relationship is your fault. I'm not saying that you're the one that, that failed to handle it in a biblical manner. It might be that you tried very diligently to deal biblically with the sin, but the other person refused to cooperate. Happens all the time. A relationship between two sinners is only going to work if both sinners are committed to dealing biblically with the sin. So if Joe is committed to dealing biblically with the sin, but Bob is not, then it's only a matter of time before sin destroys that relationship. And if Bob is committed to dealing biblically with the sin, but Joe is not, it's only a matter of time before sin destroys that relationship. And if neither Joe nor Bob are committed to dealing with the sin biblically, then that relationship is going to be destroyed very quickly. But when Joe and Bob are both committed to dealing with the sin according to God's word, then you have a relationship that will last. Not because sin doesn't enter into that relationship, but because the sin that does enter in is handled according to God's prescription for sin. What we see the Apostle Paul doing in our sermon text is trying to handle the sin that entered into his relationship with the Galatians in a biblical manner. And it's not difficult to see where the problem is. The Galatians were the ones who were being fickle. They were the ones who had developed animosity toward Paul. They were the ones who were pulling away from the relationship. So Paul pursued them. Look at verses 19 and 20. My little children, for whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone. He's using the metaphor of a woman giving birth. And I think we all know, whether we're male or female, whether we've given birth or just heard about it, I think we could all understand that the birthing process is not easy. Uh, there's a lot of pain and discomfort involved, and there's a certain degree of awkwardness involved. Uh, Paul is telling the Galatians that he had to go through a lot of pain, discomfort, and awkwardness to bring the gospel to them the first time. And now that the Galatians are turning away from God, turning away from the gospel, turning away from Paul, he's saying that he's committed to going through that pain, discomfort, and awkwardness again. What Paul is demonstrating to us is the stark difference between loyal friends and fickle friends. Loyal friends pursue. Fickle friends leave. Loyal friends seek the interests of the other person. Fickle friends seek their own interests. Loyal friends go through the pain, discomfort, and awkwardness of mending the relationship. Fickle friends won't try because they think it's too difficult. Loyal friends place a high value on being at peace with others. Fickle friends are content with burning bridges. Loyal friends will choose their words carefully so as to encourage reconciliation. Fickle friends are careless with their words, speaking whatever comes to them in a moment, not caring about the consequences. Concerning the matter in which friends communicate with each other, Paul acknowledged in verse 20 that his tone was confrontational. Um, 
But it was a loving confrontation. It was lovingly confrontational. And he says that he longs to be restored to them so that he can change his tone. So he no longer has to be confrontational with them. But right now, the loving thing to do is to be confrontational, Paul is saying. And the reality is, brothers and sisters, if you're going to deal biblically with the sin that enters into your relationships with other people, then you're going to need to lovingly confront the sinner. You're going to need to go through the pain, discomfort, and awkwardness of biblical confrontation. Which means you're going to need to go to that other person and say something like, I believe you have sinned against me and I would like to speak with you about it so that we can be reconciled. My goal is our reconciliation. But, be, but, but, but we need to have a conversation in order for that to happen. Yet very few Christians are willing to do that. Most of us prefer to avoid confrontation. So we make all kinds of excuses for why we shouldn't have to experience the labor pains of biblical reconciliation. But when we do this, the sin issue isn't resolved in a biblical manner. And, and now that unresolved sin has the opportunity to grow and to fester and uh, now it, it's, it's putting additional strain on the relationship and over the course of time what started out as a little point of irritation has grown into major disputes and disagreements. The inevitable result is, well, you guessed it, confrontation. The very thing that was trying to be avoided at the beginning. Only now... The confrontation isn't over a single manageable issue. It's over a long series of big issues that have taken on a life of their own. And at this point, it's no longer a simple conversation between two people who are both committed to a healthy relationship. Now, it's more of a, of a feud between two people who have grown bitter toward one another, who are thinking the worst of each other, who probably already slandered the other person behind their back, and who may have uh, be tempted just to just throw away the relationship. Because at this point, it's way too difficult, way too painful to sit down and sort through all the baggage that has accumulated. So let's just write this one off. Loving confrontation which is carried out early for the purpose of healing and maintaining strong relationships is the right thing to do. It's the biblical thing to do. It's the loyal thing to do. And how can we be sure about this? Because it's what God did with us. He pursued us while we were perfectly content to live apart from him. He initiated the process of restoring our relationship with him while we were perfectly content to remain unreconciled. This is what Romans 5.8 teaches us. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God was loyal to us when we were fickle with him. Jesus laid down his life for us while we wanted to do nothing uh, had nothing to do with him. The Spirit gave us a heart of flesh when we were perfectly content with our heart of stone. Brothers and sisters, when you 
deal biblically with the sin that enters into your relationships, you are being an imitator of God. You're demonstrating your love for the other person by initiating reconciliation. And when you die to self so that you can attain peace with your spouse, with your family members, with your friends, you are being an imitator of Christ. You're laying down your life for them. And when you're willing to carefully listen and respectfully interact with your spouse, your family members, or your friends, when they come to you with a concern, you're demonstrating your love for them. You're demonstrating that your desire is to be a loyal spouse, a loyal child, a loyal sibling, a loyal cousin, a loyal friend, and the list goes on. Proverbs 27 verse 9 says, oil and perfume make the heart glad and the sweetness of a friend comes with, uh, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. The sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. May the Lord cause all of us to be loyal friends who give and receive earnest counsel. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.